for me, you know, I define grit as relentless pursuit of purpose. You know, purpose is like, you know, understanding your reason for existing. And I think that comes out of conviction. And so as you have these moments, everybody has them. If we understand them and lean into them, then we can understand our purpose. Know this, wherever you are on your personal and professional leadership journey, you can take your game to the next level. Welcome to Training Camp for Leaders with Archie L. Jones Jr., the podcast that will help you dream bigger and pursue your goals more confidently. Hey, leaders, welcome to our Leadership Capital Series. In our kickoff episode with Kevin O'Leary, a.k.a. Mr. Wonderful, I defined leadership capital as the currency for change and talked about how the five C's are your tools to grow that currency. Just in case you forgot, those are capability, culture, communication, connection, and confidence. The reason why I'm so passionate about this idea of leadership capital is because anyone can use it, no matter how much money you have or don't have. Don't get me wrong, financial capital is certainly important, but you also need to have experience and connect with the right people. And to prove it, our guest today is someone who beat the odds by using the five C's in his personal and professional life. Not only that, once he reached the top, He then went on to help others grow their leadership capital. C.J. Stewart is a former Major League Baseball player, a highly sought-after coach, an author, and a community leader in his hometown, Atlanta. He was also mentioned by James Connolly on our very first episode of the show, and his story sounded so inspiring, we just had to bring him on. CJ also runs a nonprofit with his wife Kelly called Lead Center for Youth. They use baseball to teach Atlanta's at risk youth how to thrive in their personal and professional lives and give them the tools to become leaders. In this conversation, you'll hear CJ's incredible life story the impact that cultural icons had on his confidence, the wisdom he's gained as a coach. And of course, how he used the five C's to succeed. As always, stick around afterwards to hear my three key takeaways. Let's go. Because of CJ's background, I couldn't help but start our conversation with some sports talk. And right away, or should I say right off the bat, you can hear how CJ derives valuable life lessons from sports. By the way, this was recorded back in November 2023. What happened uh, to my Atlanta Braves? I'm not sure who your team is. Uh, who's your team? Oh, I'm definitely with the Atlanta Braves. In fact, um, it was hard for me when we lost in the first round to um, watch any more baseball. So I don't even I don't, I don't even know what the score <laughs> is in the World Series. But I just think that um, you play games during the season. And you perform in the postseason. Mm. And 
those are not the same thing. To play in is one thing, performing is another thing, and performance involves a lot more stress. And uh, I just just don't think that we had the the capacity that we needed to handle the stress this year. You're born and bred Atlanta, growing up on Hollywood Road, if I understand it right. And while it sounds glitzy and glamorous, um, I know it isn't. So tell us about how you came up and how that shaped you and your leadership style. Yeah, actually, I was um, driving over there yesterday. And, um, you know, other than um, a few pieces of buildings, I mean, it's pretty much all torn down. Um, so the community is changing, but I was, um, born in 1976 in Atlanta. And, um, and so I was a Grady baby. So that, that meant two things that you were black and you were poor. Uh, my mom was 16. My dad was 25. And, um, I mean, I love my parents really born to a state of trauma. And, uh, on top of that, because they were young and, there was no generational wealth passed down from great grandparents or anything like that. I was also born into poverty. I did, you know, witness my parents move from poverty to working class, but it was, it was a lot of stress. I was a mischievous kid. I mean, loving baseball. I, I had this obsession with hitting rocks. So I remember being outside hitting rocks and, and just wasn't thinking I'm, I'm actually hitting them towards apartment windows I mean, we had good days, but it was it was a lot of trauma and stress. Just young parents trying to raise me to to not be a statistic. Mm. Um, they, they were successful with it, but it was it was hard as hell on me uh, having them figure this out. I talked often about taking those tough times and you know the less than optimal upbringing to create ways for you to learn how. And you talk about in your book uh, grit. Yeah, I think some of that helps you develop grit is going through tough times, coming up hard, so to speak. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. I mean, you know, for me, you know, I define grit as relentless pursuit of purpose. You know, purpose is like, you know, understanding your reason for existing. And I think that comes out of conviction. And so as you have these moments, everybody has them. If we understand them and lean into them, then we can understand our purpose. And so that's the fuel. That's your capacity. And so if you don't have the grit, um, then you're not going to last and you're not going to be any good to yourself or anybody that, um, that is teaming up with you. CJ's grit is a part of his culture. One of the five C's of the leadership capital framework. Another part of his culture was the representation of African-American leaders that as a kid he saw in politics, sports, and entertain. It was in 1984, and I was eight years old. It was really hot in Atlanta, uh, summertime, and I would, you know, spend a lot of time over at my grandparents' house. And in the daytime, my granddad and I, we would watch these Chicago Cubs baseball games on WGN. Uh, game would be over. I would go outside. Um, I would imagine that I was Gary Matthews hitting my rocks. If you, if you hit it this way, that's a home run, hit it that way. I mean, I, I, visually for me, I was in Wrigley Field. So like that was just the entire summer. Um, in between all of that, I got an opportunity to uh, experience uh, Jesse Jackson running for president. So okay, even though I was eight years old, I knew that that was unusual. I, mean, I, I had enough experience with 
how people were talking about racism and things like that. 84 is also when Jordan, uh, Michael Jordan was drafted by the Chicago Bulls. Yes, it is. So got a chance to see all of that and just this, this black man being celebrated and on TV a lot. And then the, the final thing that happened in 1984 that really shaped my life was Run DMC. They came out with their first album. And uh, so they had the Adidas um, shell toes. So, you know, from that point on, I can remember as I look back now, that was when I decided that I want to play professional baseball and I want to play for the Chicago Cubs. And um, if I didn't have that and I didn't have those moments with my granddad in the summer, I would have been going in the wrong direction. And even if I would have been doing real estate, it would have been the wrong direction. Interesting. My path involved baseball and it still does. It's so amazing, you know, when you say that, I'm coming to appreciate, and I now talk often about the value of representation. Just seeing images, as you just described, images of uh, a black man running for president, a uh, black man being celebrated uh, on the basketball court, um, and just these images of uh, black excellence, uh, black achievement, uh, black upward mobility, uh, and what that does and how that starts to shape your view of what you wanted to do. Uh, when was the first time you actually got, you know, stop hitting rocks and actually got to get on a baseball field and, and hit a real baseball? It had to have been a conversation with my, my parents around, you know, y'all need to get them in some kind of league. Well, in Northwest Atlanta, where I lived, I mean, it was, it was poverty stricken. And so programming wise, as far as athletics was not very strong, but it was very strong in Southwest Atlanta more towards the, um, and my grandmother lived in Southwest Atlanta on the West End side. So I um, got signed up to play baseball at Cascade Youth Organization. And my very first baseball coach was Emmett Johnson Sr., who was the chairman of the Atlanta Public Schools Board of Education, Joshua Butler Sr., who was an art teacher at Mays High School, and Gus Burns, just an amazing man and a leader within the community. So I'm playing on this team with some kids that had already been playing since they were five. So I was really behind, but, you know, picked it up really, really quickly. But going back to Emmett Johnson, that position as the chairman was, and I believe still is, a position that's probably as powerful, if not more powerful than the mayor of Atlanta. Wow. So even though I'm black and poor and I don't have parents that have gone to college and they're not a part of these fraternities and sororities, my coach is Emmett Johnson. And so I'm, I'm going to be respected in this city. Then we, we had our opening day. People that played at that park still talk about it. If they would have opening day and we would have like, I'm going to say thousands of people. I mean, it was not just a lot. It's because the Southwest Atlanta was the home of uh, Hosea Williams, Maynard Jackson, yes. uh, Hank Aaron, um, Zanona Clayton. All these powerful people. And there would be times on a Monday, let's just call it a Monday, I would go to school at Grove Park Elementary School and I would be studying these people and they would be at my games that night. That's fantastic. And so to be able to look over there and even on a Saturday and watching Maynard Jackson and John Lewis, you know, shooting horseshoes over on the side, you know, I'm I'm black and poor, but I'm surrounded by power. And poor in, you know, in financial capital, but getting to be rich in relationships and connections in ways that you couldn't even fully appreciate at that time. Certainly it sunk in and, and resonated with you, but, but in, uh, in very powerful ways. By the way, 
The powers he's talking about are iconic civil rights leaders like former Atlanta mayor Maynard Jackson and U.S. Congressman John Lewis and Baseball Hall of Famer Hank Aaron. I had my first workout with the Cubs at 14 years old. Okay. In, in fact, my senior year, things had gotten so tough at home that I had to make the decision to leave and essentially was um, homeless. Um, I was able to get connected with my um, one of my teammates, Eric Hayes, and stay at, um, stay at his house. Major League teams would come into town and have fr- um, free agent tryouts. I mean, they were free. Anybody could go there. You could be 100 years old, literally, and, and go. And so I was able to establish my relationship there, and um, it worked out. I got drafted by the Cubs in 94. Uh, Leaders, do you see how CJ used his relationships to get closer to achieving his dream? That's an example of leveraging your connections right there, folks. The power of dreaming, the power of dreaming big. And um, the title of the book that I've got coming out is the, the Treasure You Seek. And you actually captured the treasure you were seeking, which is to get on that field and touch that ivy. It also touched back to your back to your grit story that 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 uh, moving into your friend's place, being you know quasi homeless, uh, but not letting that have you make you give up on your dream. That relentless pursuit of your purpose, uh, again, even through those tough circumstances and fighting and finding a way to get there, is a, is a great reminder to our listeners. Great reminder to our leaders. When did you first start thinking of yourself as a leader? I heard it a lot. You know, my mom and dad always talk to me about, you know, being a leader, you know, in, in class and everything that you're doing. Um, but I heard leader, but I never really heard about servant leadership until I was much older. Mm. And so leadership is the way I was looking at it was I'm at the top. I'm in charge. Everybody follows me versus, you know, servant leadership you know, you, 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 you can easily be the tip of the spear, but you know, you're taking responsibility for people and making sure that they're okay. That was probably introduced to me. I would say late thirties. Okay. As I started to really, you know, be in a place, you know, they talk about your, your brain developing and not developing until you start to fully develop until you get into your, your twenties. But as I was just kind of moving through life, I don't think I could really hear what was being taught to me and shared with me until I was in my mid thirties. Yeah. One of the things I talk about, uh, as I'm speaking is also in the book is, you know, that definition of leadership. A lot of people think about it the way that you thought about it in your youth, right? Is it's all about title. It's about control. It's about power. Um, and less about where you evolve to, uh, which is around servant. It's about service. Uh, and being a servant leader and actually, you know, in many ways, leading by lifting up others. And so uh, you're not alone. In, in, and a lot of people are still working through that definition. And I love the fact that, you know, the circumstances you grew up in um, could have easily led to you not thinking about yourself as a leader. And so it was powerful to have your parents and other role models speaking to you about leadership um, I know you're, most of your fantastic work has been done off the field, but before we leave baseball, what leadership lessons did you get as a player? I think what I got was the, the importance of understanding your position and 
you know, mastering it because on a baseball field, you got, you know, nine players. And, um, I, I would think, you know, growing up and I, you know, played outfield because I was, uh, I had good speed, had good arm, but the infield, they got all these bunt plays and pickoff plays and all these things and all these very intricate things. So, um, in spring training one year, um, because the outfielders were, you know, not doing a good job throwing the ball back into the infield and so on and so forth, they made a switch roles. And it was so much stress being in the infield. Oh my God. I mean, <laughs> I, I was like, you know, this is definitely not for me. So, you know, even now within my role with, with Lee as the chief visionary officer, I do a really good job of being exposed to different things, different people, different communities. And being able to come back to our team as an ambassador and just saying, hey, listen, we really need to consider this. <clears throat> and so uh, I have to be very respectful of others, knowing that I don't have that skill set of implementation. So I can't come in and say, we got to do this. <laughs> right. Uh, and, I, and I think baseball and, and just understanding and respecting different positions allows me to be a good teammate, you know, even today. After CJ's career as a professional baseball player ended, he took on a new role, coach. He started a new training company called Diamond Directors and designed a super effective system to assess players' abilities. But a few years later, a friend helped him realize that he could have an even bigger impact on his community. So in 2007, uh, we had... Kelly and I was, you know, nine, 10 years into our uh, for-profit business, Diamond Directors. So with Diamond Directors, you know, we, we develop elite baseball players. And so Stan Conway, who um, is a good friend and very well-known and respected and, and wealthy in the world of commercial real estate, he had a middle school age son and he happens to be white. Stan is white. His son Davis is white. Stan brought him to me so that I can um, train him uh, as a hitter. We got a lot of work done and Davis was, was, you know, a shorter kid, but very good swing, very competitive. So I had been working with him for a couple of years. And so then Stan just out the blue one day, he says, CJ, you know, you are a good coach, but if you was as good as you think you are, your rates wouldn't be so low. Mm. You know, at this point, in year nine, ten, I mean, I probably had at least 15 major leaguers that I had developed. My rate would fluctuate anywhere between 20 and $50 an hour, depending on my competition. So if they went low, I went low. And so I'm, I'm competing with other people on cost. He said, also, if you was as good as you think you are, it shouldn't be so easy for people to get access to you. He was like, right now, essentially, you know, you're developing major leaguers, but somebody could pick up the phone and be in here in the next 30 minutes and you're going to say yes and you're going to be one of the cheapest. Wow. And then the third thing that he said um, was there's a decline of blacks in baseball. You're not doing anything about it. And just really challenged me on how I spend all of my time in the suburbs, you know, working with middle-class kids, mostly white. Uh, but I spent zero time in the community that I was from um, in the inner city of Atlanta. And I just remember telling my, my wife, Kelly, I was like, you know, we got to do something about this. And um, so we had the main lead and uh, we started out with $60,000 um, donation from Stan. 
and which allowed us to get a, a program um, developer to kind of get some things going. We started out with 18 families that year, just doing some summer travel ball. Uh, and then fast forwarding, you know, now we're in year 16 uh, here in um, 2023, and we are just a little bit under $2 million organization. What's that hourly rate now? Everybody out there, you got to stay in the thing for the for the inflation and and the prices of getting the CJ. But that's powerful, though, the fact that he not only helped you think about your worth from a financial standpoint, right, that you were worth more to your clients and could be charging more. But maybe even more important was your worth to the broader community in that those lessons that you were teaching, again, not just on the baseball field, because I'm assuming what Stan saw was while you were also instructing his son on baseball and some techniques around that, you were also developing him as a young man, as a leader, having him think differently about himself uh, and where he could go. And that while his son was benefiting from that, those folks back in our community was gonna would be able to benefit from that even even more so. You hear that, leaders? There's another one of the five C's right there. Confidence. It wasn't until CJ recognized his own value that he could then help others discover theirs. Tell me about your transition from player to coach. I wanted to stay in baseball, but, you know, back then, there um, there weren't any, like, really formalized ways of really staying in the game there was no there was no bridge to being able to like you know coach professionally also i had to really take a chance and had kelly um be patient with me as i was trying to create myself it was it was almost like a hope and chance type thing it was nothing like methodical about it there was no pedagogy so i was saying to myself if i could really establish some success but really document what i'm doing you know, maybe there's some patterns here. And so I was doing that, eventually got connected with a mentor. He told me, he said, hey, um, give me everything that you've ever written down or thought about on hitting. Just just give it to me. And and I'm gonna I'm gonna put it into a process. And I did, and he came out with this process called at bats. A T B A T S. No, I love that. I love I love A. Because it speaks to all of our leaders on how an entrepreneurial journey starts, right? Something you were good at, something you were passionate about. Uh, There wasn't a clear path ahead of how to turn your playing days into what the next thing was going to be. And you had to dream it up. CJ and his wife, Kelly, founded the Lead Center for Youth using the process he developed. Their organization empowers at-risk youth through sports. In the same way that he was inspired by black leaders in the community when he was a kid, CJ and his wife are now paying it forward. Talk about coming full circle. We have a process. You know, it drives me crazy, especially when when I'm with people that probably should know better when they say, trust the process, but then you don't have a process. Right. So I think it's very important. If you're going to be a coach, you have to have a process. I mean, it's like, how are you doing what you're doing? And like I said, for me right now is 
I have several mental models that I use, but the, you know, the one that at bats, when a kid comes in, my assessment is so thorough to the point where I can just have the parents rather than them paying for the kid to continue to come to me. It's just like, Hey dad, mom, you're doing all the things that, that needs to be done. Here's what you need to keep doing. It's going to save you money. It's going to save me time. And I, I, I like my time more than I like your money. <laughs> I can't afford to retire right now, but I really like my time and I don't want to waste my time. Um, and so actually even also to all of those things within that methodology from a financial standpoint, those are all a la carte services. <laughs> so I have programming in each one of those things, uh, which, and, and also too, what it allows me to do as I, as I chunk all those things out, it creates employment opportunities as well for other people. So, you know, coaching is very important to me, but I think, I don't think that you can call yourself a coach if you don't have a process. Got it. And, and that idea of transcending the sport, right? So even once, once they're no longer playing baseball, I love how you described there that they're taking those lessons that those lessons of applying a process of, of practicing, of you know, working on their craft into whatever their next endeavor may be, whatever their, their future or their career goals may look like. Since Ian Kelly started LEAD, all of the young men and women who have completed the LEAD Ambassador Program have graduated from high school. 93% have enrolled into college. And 90% have received college scholarship opportunities. Tell me about the book, Living to Lead. What uh, what inspired you to write that and who was that written for? Uh, being a black man um, in the city of Atlanta in particular and doing sports, a lot of times I felt like I was being reduced down to, you know, uh, you know, that's the guy, he's, you know, he's a baseball coach. He's out here having fun with kids. And so regardless of their level of success, you know, what I wanted them to understand is, is regardless of how you think about me, I know my story and you probably don't. Mm. You know, because I haven't done all these different things, I don't. I don't have a lot of these status markers. There was all these negative assumptions, and some people have told me that that they just didn't feel like I was strong because of things that I, I, I lacked. But if I but if I got this book, I know my story. And oftentimes, what I would do before I would go into um, meetings with people to tell them about lead, I would just I would mail them a copy of the book. I love it, even if they didn't read it. <laughs> I got a book. I know my story. Leaders, you hear that? That's that's uh, one of the main things we talk about in communicating is is telling your story. Communication, one of the five C's of leadership capital, telling your story. You don't all have to write a book, uh, but you do need to get comfortable telling your story and making sure that you convey it in a way so that folks understand who you are and what your superpower is and what your what your worth is. I appreciate that story. That's fantastic. Um, what's your superpower? Conviction. The critical change construct that I've created for my C's is conviction leads to connection. Connection leads to consensus. Consensus leads to collaboration and collaboration leads to change. Mm. If that's your superpower, what's your kryptonite? Um, my kryptonite is being able to listen empathetically. Um, Sometimes, you know, because I'm a visionary and I can sometimes see the see things in people 
more than they can see it in themselves um, and, and just lacking pa- patience. Um, patience means to wait without anger. Um, so because I can be impatient, now I'm not able to listen empathetically. <clears throat> um, so my kryptonite is just lack of patience and not listening empathetically. What's on the horizon for leveraging your leadership capital going forward? What have you got still in the works? We are working on um, a a partnership with the city of Atlanta, public-private partnership to build a baseball tennis complex in the Center Hill community where I was born and raised. And um, so we're going through that process. I mean, it's it's a it's a complex process, but we're we're gonna we're gonna remain patient because we've got a lot of different people that will be involved. Uh, as we raise the funds and build this, um, but it's it's looking good. The other thing that we're doing um, that that requires leadership is our barnstorming tour. Um, and so, barnstorming is the way that the Negro leagues would travel throughout the country in order to you know play baseball. Yeah. And so, in as much as it was baseball, it was it was commerce, and everywhere that they went, uh, it was it was an economic development increase. Um, a lot of people don't know this, but um, night games were invented in the Negro Leagues. Uh, so when they travel, uh, when 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 white um, stadium owners wouldn't let them play at, during the daytime, no problem. We'll just play at night. So with the barnstorming tool, we're able to take our program participants, our junior ambassadors at the middle school level and high school ambassadors, and even now our elementary school program participants, to rural and suburban communities and partner with um, white baseball teams in those communities and make a full day of, of programming touch points. So for our boys, them getting a chance to go into these communities, have race relations conversations that leads to connection. I saw that uh, in our fair city of Atlanta, there's a mural painted in your honor. How does that make you feel? Listen. So I, when I say this, is this is this is not come from a place of, of of arrogance whatsoever. We we actually have three. Oh wow! Pardon me, three. <laughs> <laughs> and the first one that we had in 2021 um, was commissioned um, by Adidas through their honoring Black Excellence um, campaign, and so we were uh, honoring. And it was actually commissioned in the in the Bankhead Zone One community uh, that I was born and raised in. So that was very emotional. Um, it's a mural of my wife Kelly and I, uh, along with flowers, um, because you know Adidas wanted to make sure that we were receiving our flowers um, right now while we were alive. The second mural that we had commissioned, um, it was done with um, Atlanta United. And um, and so uh, that one is of, of Kelly of I and I, and then the third one is commissioned by Adidas, and it also has it features our lead ambassador alums, and it's on Metropolitan Parkway, yeah, uh, right across the street from um, the place where my dad um, had his first job at a place called Peter Pan, um, and so they would make cookies and things like that. So. You know, it's, it's just amazing what I'll say about those uh, murals. You know, one, I mean, we're still alive. And a lot of times for people in general, but black people specifically, you know, we'll get these this honor, but we have to die to get it. Mm. Um, 
But also, too, it's important because, you know, we we are aggressively recruiting boys in competition with gangs. So it is a thing to show the boys and now girls in our program through tennis that, you know, Coach Kelly and I, we have power. We have social capital. Yeah. And we are committed to using that to help you. Wow, what an incredible story. I hope you're feeling as inspired as I do right now. Here are my three key takeaways from what you just heard. Number one, we all face challenges in life. Just make sure that you use them to develop the grit that will help you relentlessly pursue your purpose. Number two, know your worth. Only then can you serve as an effective leader and as an inspiration for those around you. Number three, leadership is, above all, an act of service. So use your influence to give back to your community and help others achieve their leadership goals. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to Training Camp for Leaders with Archie L. Jones Jr. so you don't miss out on new episodes. Also rate and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. If you are a leader or aspiring to be one, visit archieljonesjr.com. There you can pre-order my book, The Treasure You Seek, a guide to developing and leveraging your leadership capital and connect directly with me. If you want to learn more about Next Gen Coach Network Governance Training Camp, and the work we do, visit our website at nextgencoachnetwork.com. That's spelled N-X-G-E-N, coachnetwork.com. Thank you so much for joining us, and I'll catch you all in the next episode. Training Camp for Leaders with RTL Jones Jr. is produced by Next Gen Coach Network and Human Group Media. Music.